Welcome to Acquisition Talk, a podcast on how the military decides what weapon systems it will field and the management tools for getting it done. I'm Eric Lofgren of George Mason University's Baroni Center for Government Contracting. If you enjoy this podcast, be sure to share it with your colleagues and get more content by subscribing to my blog at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks for listening. I'm here with Dorothy Engelhart, the Director of Unmanned Systems in the Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Navy, DAZN, for ships, and she has been in this role since 2015. Before that, she was a Senior Acquisition Manager for the Marine Corps MDAPs and had over 20 years' experience in NAVAIR, as well as experience on the Hill. Dorothy, thanks for joining me on Acquisition Talk. Hey, thanks for inviting me. Whenever I look at the unmanned space in the Navy, it just seems there's a lot going on. I'll just say that. Can you just provide us an introduction to the unmanned portfolio in the Navy? What are the important systems and what stages are they at? Yeah, so happy to do that. So predominantly, my portfolio is surface and undersea and all the enabling technologies associated with that. But I'm down the hall for the aviation side of the house. So I Dabble a little more, I would say dabble more in the aviation side, but manage the surface and undersea. And then, of course, as you're aware, we have the unmanned task force that's doing analytical work, trying to figure out what systems can we buy within the fit up? What could we get after soon? What commercial technologies could we leverage or what capabilities could we put together and create a new capability? And then there's obviously Task Force 59 that is trying to really bend the curve on commercial applications. So there's a lot, to your point, a lot going on with unmanned systems. Uh, When Secretary Del Toro came into his role, I put together an overarching brief on unmanned systems. And if you looked at the financial piece of it, 50% is R&D, so research and development, and the other 50% is in production. Not a lot's gone into what I would say traditional sustainment. So there's a lot of developmental work. So if you look at that on an acquisition curve, We are in the lower left-hand tier of how we're acquiring, developing, and then eventually procuring. A lot of activity in the R&D space. You said that you're trying to do a lot of things within the FITUP, the Future Years Defense Program. I've heard that the Navy is going to be focusing on all these enabling technologies, and they're actually delaying programs of record until FY25 or even like 26. So how does that kind of comport with doing things in the FITUP, or what's going on? Yeah, so that's a really good question. So... When you look and think about the enabling technology piece of this, we have to build the ecosystem to connect the dots. We can buy platforms all day long. That's not the sexy sauce. The sexy sauce is getting our ones and zeros, our command and control, our battery life, our endurance. Trying to figure out what autonomy really looks like for all these systems really matters. And so before we go out and buy all the platforms and figure out that, oh my gosh, they're not talking to one another, we're actually trying to build that ecosystem first with the communications, like I said, and making it so that once we put these platforms out to sea or in the fleet, that they are able to communicate and integrate with the man fleet. So there's a lot of homework that has to be done. It's not intentional to delay the platforms. Rather, we're really trying to take a more, I'll just say, engineering approach to building the necessary pillars that we need to sustain a capability for MUMT. 
And mum T, of course, is man unmanned teaming, right? Correct. So did you guys actually adopt that from the Air Force or like that term or word that you term? You know, I actually think started that. And so we look at it now and is it human autonomy teaming? Maybe it'll evolve to something along those lines because it's really we're finding that it's the ability of the human to adapt to the computer. That's really what is really setting the pace for us. And I hate to say it, but I don't want to say I hate to say it, but computers can really figure things out a lot faster than the average Joe, so to speak. You said you wanted to get all the enabling technologies right before getting to the platforms, but it seems we're in the danger window, so to speak, of China in the 2020s. What's the long lead or the longest lead or the longest pole in the tent here? You know, should we just get a bunch of holes in the water and then all the enabling technologies can be integrated and work through that like along the way? Or... Is it really the best idea to like work through these enabling technologies? And then once they're all ready, we can go for the hulls. But it feels like now we're pushing that timeline out for getting the hulls in the water for many years. Yeah. So one of the things that Congress has mandated to us is said, you will not, and given us a series of things that we need to comply with, getting the number of hours that our engines and our ships, how long they have to last for, has been mandated by Congress now. So we have to comply with that. And they will not give us the keys to the car, so to speak, until we can demonstrate that we have the technology matured. Things like demonstrating endurance matter. Longevity and lithium-ion batteries matter. Getting things like our data labeling correct matters because all of that can potentially be expensive and costly if we don't do it smartly. And trying to establish standards, that's the other thing that people really forget about. When you are trying to build an ecosystem that really is very similar to, I'll say, the phone industry for lack of a better analogy. But iPhone and Androids, they have their iOS operating systems, and then they have APIs. They have different, you go to the marketplace and you can drop in software. The software developers have learned that they need to develop software to match those interfaces. That's the same approach that the Navy wants to take with our autonomy associated with these platforms. We don't want to get into a situation where we get stuck in vendor lock. I don't want to be beholding to company X when I see company A, B, and C iterating faster on autonomy, whether it's navigational autonomy, whether it's HM&E autonomy, whether it's targeting autonomy. We want to have that flexibility. So establishing what those standards need to be is critical so that we can continuously upgrade our systems as they mature. And as for delaying, you say delaying, we are prototyping. We are experimenting as much as we can with these vessels to learn where we need to improve them, how we want to improve them. So that's really important. That learning curve experimentation is really important for us to be successful. I kind of want to follow up on a couple things there, first on the data and then on the, I guess, the whole part. But starting with the data, you know, I had a Colin Carroll on the podcast and he was talking about a lot of the program offices, they're doing all these experimentations and they're actually like not collecting and organizing and owning the data itself. When you guys go out and do those types of experiments, like at RIMPAC where you had the LUSVs, where does all that data go? And do you guys actually own all that data and like... You were like the central hub for it. How does that work? So RIMPAC, for example, is what you're referring to. And there was our OUSVs that we put out there, SCO ships that we procured, the first two, and then the two, Seahawk and Sea Hunter. We got gigs of data that we were pouring through in terms of all these things I mentioned endurance, engine faults that we needed to fix, how much oil was able to go through and be repurposed or reused and before the system had an issue. So there is lots of data that we are going through. And yes, we do own that data. 
to my point earlier, the Navy needs to own this data so that we can do the continuous improvement and understand where these problems lie, if there's a problem, and how to fix it. So it's really important that we own that data. We don't need to own the IP associated, right? We just need to own the data and the interfaces so that, again, so industry can build to those interfaces. And that's including the, for the autonomy systems? Absolutely. We absolutely, that's quintessential, right? How a ship navigates through the water and complies with coal regs. How am I going to prove to dot and &E, for example, compliance with coal regs unless I own the data and prove Yes, it's not going to hit another vessel or an inanimate object, whatever it may be. I have to be able to demonstrate that, not only in modeling and simulation, but on the water. And so I need to own that data, and I need to be able to validate that to our test community. Is the kind of like labeling of that autonomy data coupled with contract for the actual algorithm itself, or how does that work? So we're just breaking that out now. So at least I should say within PMS 406 for the surface and undersea, you've probably seen a solicitation on the street for what we're calling our autonomy baseline manager. So the idea there is we are establishing, you've probably heard the term software factory. We're trying to establish a software factory where we can use modeling and simulation. We can put our ones and zeros, our data, our digital twins into this environment, we can do cybersecurity, we can do essentially troubleshooting, a myriad of things, but we put it there so that we can own that data and make sure that we've got anti-tamper, et cetera, all those things in this from a digital perspective first before it actually goes into the hardware. So it's really important, again, that we own that data, again, not the IP, not interested in owning the IP, but owning the data so that we can improve on it. And then you can deliver that to any number, like if anyone wants to play with their own algorithm or get in on that game, like you can deliver that, that data to them or something? Yeah, so the data is important, right? And every AOR and every different environment that you're working in has different targets that you're looking at. For example, on the surface is going to be very different than below the surface. In the air is going to look very different than undersea, as I said. So knowing that environment in which you're operating in becomes crucial to making your system efficient, right? And so owning that data will be important so they can train the algorithms, improve the algorithms as you learn and update the algorithms along the way. So going back to the kind of hull and mechanical side of it, the unmanned community invited me out to the medium un unmanned surface vessel. I got a nice little tour of that, the Mariner, which was really cool. And it, yeah, there was just like a ton of stuff just going on down in the engine room. And I took this one thing from you that you had in the disruptor, which was like capability over time curve. So can you just talk to us a little bit about, because it seems like some of these requirements are delaying the ability to get some of these things into production. So what is the requirement for how long that thing has, to, the engine has to be like operating without humans touching it? And how fast are you moving along that curve? And do you see like a potential projection point, oh, we're going to reach it here, or is that thing bending off? What does that look like? Yeah, that's a really good and good scientific question, right? So the idea is to identify where do we want to go with our capability, and how are we going to get there? And are we making those right investments? So to your point on the engine reliability, Congress said you needed 720 hours, you need to demonstrate 720 hours without humans touching it. If I put a USV out to sea, it can go 
the idea is that it'll meet that 720 hours. Hopefully, we'll double that. But the intention is that I don't have to have a team out there constantly fixing it. That doesn't mean the engines can't have issues, but that there's redundancy in there to self-heal and to fix and that it can still meet its mission operation. For example, we have multiple engines and distributing that power across those engines is how we're going to probably achieve those goals, objectives, and thresholds for increasing our endurance. So it really comes down to mathematical equations. It comes down to reliability of the systems and then distributing that across the systems. But that's an important thing for us to meet. Again, we got to meet Congress's 720 hours. And so that that's what we're, again, largely experimenting with. We've got companies. We awarded six contracts, I want to say in 2021, I could be wrong on the date there, for industry to start looking at this as well. So if industry is going to bid on a USV or a large USV, they are going to have to demonstrate to us how they achieve that 720 hours without a man, fi- I say a man, don't get me wrong, man, woman, a human fixing the in this particular case, a USV at water out at sea within that time frame. So that, that's really our goal is to demonstrate that. I heard you guys had already breached 500 hours. Is that true? Like, where were you like a few years ago? How, where are you today? And then like, where do you expect to get to that 720? Ooh, that's a good question. I wish my lead engineer was here who's <laughs> not under my table here. So I have to get back to you on that because I, I don't want to give you misinformation. And like I said, there was a lot of, a lot of data that's been being poured over with at RIMPAC. So those curves, they have that information. I just don't have it off the top of my head. So sorry on that one. Yeah. It'd be cool to just be like, this is where we were. This is where we are. And we expect to be there by this date. So we should have that. We should be like ready to go at that time, as opposed to just, let's just sequentially, like very methodically push risk over to the warfighter by taking our acquisition risk to zero. No, I get it. And that's what you'll eventually, I know you probably are going to ask me about the autonomy roadmap at some point. And that's one of those things that we're trying to get after. And again, you're focusing on the HMNE, but there's a lot of other things that we need to be looking at as well, in addition to the HMNE piece of this. Yeah. And by the way, where did the 720 hours come from? There's always like a requirement out there, but I'm like, what, what was the operational imperative behind that? I think that equates to 30 days. And if I was... I'd have to do monkey well, then, math there. But then what is 30 days besides just a nice round well, number of a month? absolutely correct. What does that really, what does that relate to? Is that what I would need to keep up with a SAG? No, I need speed to keep up with the SAG. So it's a really good Surface question. Surface action group, is yes. that SAG? Yeah. Okay. So you ask a really good question. Is 15 days adequate? Maybe. Is 17? Is 20? Again, we don't know. I think when we first started toying with the idea, we initially said, well, I want 60 days. Why? Because that's a nice round number and that's two months out at sea. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Is there a con up that requires that? Probably not. But if you think of where we want to put these vessels, obviously the less maintenance, the better, (laughs) ultimately. So can we optimize that? And at what price? Because everybody's going to, eventually we're going to get to a knee in the curve and we've got to figure out what that knee in the curve is and what we can afford. Yeah, so let's get a little bit to the, I guess, the con ops, the concept of operations, because it, it feels, okay, maybe 30 days is great, but if it, if you're actually operating things in a con op where they just sit with 
a DDG-51 or as part of that SAG, you could probably just run someone over there pretty quick to go fix it, as opposed to if they're like super forward deployed and doing something out in front, maybe they do need that. So have you guys thought about what does that con op look like, or is that still up in the air? No, they're definitely being worked at. So SurfDevRon is our trading group, for lack of a better word, our organization that is developing the con ops and the TTPs, and they're absolutely looking at how are they going to Mumty, how are we going to team with our SAG and our, our service action groups and our ARGs and our carrier strike groups? Those con ops are being explored. And so some of the things that we did during RIMPAC is like, how, what does that look like in terms of who's talking to who, how close are they, how far forward are they, etc. Obviously, we want to make sure that we're, like I said, augmenting what the intention of the SAG and the ARG or the carrier strike group would be. So a lot of those concepts are still being flushed out, but we're absolutely working that direction and demonstrating and experimenting in that area. And so you talked about Surf Devron. There's a bunch of players, I think, going on in this space, right? Like I think SCO, right, the Strategic Capabilities Office, developed some of this stuff and then handed it over to ONR, the Office of Naval Research. You mentioned the Unmanned Task Force. Then there's PEOUSC, unmanned and small combatants, right? They Mm. are going to buy it. How do all these guys work together here? Yeah, it is coalition of the willing in many ways. There are a lot of people, like I said, if you look at the budget, there's a lot of research and development still ongoing in this area. And every day you turn around, there's a new capability that's being discovered or put together and demonstrated, whether it's in Task Force 59 whether it's the Marines doing something with the MLR concept. So ONR is definitely heavily vested. DARP is heavily vested in trying to come up with a year-long no-Mars ship, right? No, completely hands-off for 365 days. So there's a lot of engineering and a lot of development going in this area. And it's a matter of trying to keep it all focused and keep the objective is, the objective on the prize, the objective is how do we augment our manned fleet so that we can operate better and keep our sailors out of harm's way. So it does take a lot of coordination within the building. It takes a lot of coordination within our PEOs, both PEO UNW and PEO USC. Two separate PEOs, one's aviation, one is surface and undersea, but we are absolutely coordinating and having these discussions. CCS is a perfect example that's tying a lot of this together, a common control, we say system, right, capability so that I can control my surface, my undersea, and my aviation pieces. What does that really look like from an architecture perspective? How am I going to augment my manships with that capability? So that has to be orchestrated Back to your question initially, why are you looking at all these enabling technologies? I don't want to have 15 different separate controllers. I don't have the ship space for that, right? Thinking through these problem sets thoroughly up front are really critical, again, for success on the other side. The Navy, they always have their 30-year shipbuilding plan, right? And I think there's like something called like the Ships Act is you got to get to 355 ships. That's somewhere in the law, actually. And we see the Navy, they have all these different projections. Every year, there's always like a different projection. But it seems like they want to have about 150 unmanned ships by 2040, something, something like that. But there's this whole like debate, and it just seems to go on and on. Like, how do we get the capacity? We're like under 300 ships. Certainly, China is over 355 ships now. Of course, like the displacement of those ships are much less than the U.S. Navy's, and it's hard to talk about 
capabilities potentially but this capacity issue is really like front of mind in the navy and everyone harkens back to the 600 ship navy days of the reagan years let alone the 6000 ship navy of post-world war ii so you talked a little bit about it with the enabling technologies and with the hmne and stuff like that but what what other limiting factors are there to like scaling these usvs out like just right now what could we what are those other things that would enable oversight in congress to be like yes this is ready Yeah, that's a mouthful. So one of the things that we're looking at when you look at the industrial base is who has capacity. And obviously our shipyards are pretty busy. So we are looking for even tier two, tier three suppliers, people that can build these things. Again, for I'll say for the medium USV, right? The medium USV, it's an offshore vessel built typically commercially. And it's a matter of augmenting the engines and the autonomy and stuff like that. There's probably an easier, maybe not easier, but it's probably easier to tap into those type of shipyards. As for LUSV, I suspect, I could be wrong on this, but I suspect until we put an RFP out on the street, I would imagine the large shipyards will want to compete on that, right? And that makes a lot of sense. When it comes down to capacity, it's going to really require a lot of coordination. And maybe it'll be shipyards that are working together. Or maybe we would have, and I'm not saying this is the strategy, but we may find ourselves in a situation where we would have two shipyards building medium and larges, depending on what it is that we settle on for our PPs and our requirements. So I can't foreshadow what the ship plan will look like when we finally start with a program of record. And it may be that the larger companies may start looking at, oh, wisdom I would say, hey, what could I do with my autonomous ships that could improve my manships? Like maybe you'll see some trade-offs there that are coming forward towards the Navy in terms of, hey, this technology is working for unmanned vessels. Why wouldn't I put it on a manned ship? And there may be some trade space or there may be some efficiencies gained there if they want to go after some of our larger or medium USVs. Maybe there'll be some opportunity there to benefit from larger industry ship manufacturers. I I think that's still a big question at this point. And until we put an RFP out there with a demand signal with quantities, I don't know if we'll really know. I don't think I can speculate beyond that. What will it take to get the RFP out then? So we're working through the trade space. Typical acquisition, right? We never want to get into a situation where we put an RFP out there, start building and then say, oh, we didn't get it right. Part of the reason why we are putting so much time and effort into prototyping these vessels is to really learn what works, what do we need for the reliability, what does it need for C2, what does it need for the common control, how much space weight swap do we have, etc. What payloads, that's the other question, it's like what payloads do we want to put on these vessels, what does that cost? The idea with an LUSV is to make it low cost. If I suddenly start outfitting it with every payload and the brother, that's going to cost money. And now you're transitioning from that low cost point to a more exquisite. We want to avoid that. So there is a lot of discussion in the building on what our KPPs, minimal capability would be, and maybe what our KSAs might be, some attributes that we may want to see, and maybe some swap space for growth in that area. So right now we're looking, There's a there is a draft CDD, so that's good. And so the, those debates and those discussions are fast and furious in the building. So hopefully we're targeting an FY25. So hopefully we'll have in 24 sometime a, a signed CDD. That's what we're hoping for. And so FY25 is when the RFP might drop. And then we have about two years to get to the award. 
and then we got a few years for construction. So we're what are we looking at? A 2030 kind of deployment time for an LUSV? I, I would say that would be fair. I think that's probably a fair assessment. As I say that, we may find that industry's really doing their homework, sharpening their pencils, and they're looking at vessels now. So it may be that we come up with our requirements and there may be a vessel design already out there that we, I don't want to say gut for a lack of a better word, but augment with the right engines and the right power and the right yada, whatever it may be. So if industry's doing their homework, and I'm hoping that they are, they may have, I'll say, a quicker solution than your traditional I'll say shipbuilding program. I'm hopeful. That's why we're leaning in with industry. That's why we've brought them in with these studies up front. We're, we spent a lot of money and we're learning a lot. And I think they're learning quite a bit too. And we are trying to be as open kimono as possible when we look at our requirements that we're look, contemplating. We're talking to industry and we're getting feedback from them. So by the time that RFP hits the street, there should be no surprises for industry. So they should be well positioned to respond. Hopefully, I would like to say in shorter order than normal, but that may not be the case. But certainly from a manufacturing perspective, be at the ready to start manufacturing and delivering. Do you have a sense of whether these companies are already putting significant IRAD into kind of hardware in this space, or do we know what's going on there? So I'm not, from an IRAD perspective, I can't speak on behalf of industry. Like I said, I'll say I'm hopeful. I think they're doing their homework, probably looking at engines now in terms of the longevity piece that we need. I would hope that they were probably working with their architects to figure out how they would be distributed, et cetera, placements, whole forms. There's a lot of things that need to go into that. So I'm sure they're probably doing a lot of concept designs in their own space. I just couldn't tell you numerically where or how much they're spending in that, in that particular realm. Could you just say a little bit about, so for the LUSV, are you thinking of what, we're going to have 32 vertical launch systems on it, or are there going to be like different models of it where some are like sensors, or are the MUSVs doing the sensing and the forward stuff and LUSVs doing some strike, or how do you see that coming out? So conceptually, that's what our con ops look like at this time. I Again, I think through our experimentation, we may find there may be some sensing that we could integrate into an LUSV for the right price point, but it may be that our medium USVs do exactly what you're talking about, more of the sensing IO type work. And we may find maybe they were looking at these for logistics vessels as well. There would be no reason why, you know, if I can put 40 foot containers on there, why couldn't I make that a USV, a logistics vessel to help rearm and resupply far forward. So I think we're still learning what our medium and large ultimately will wind up be being right and which is why we're still working through the cdd yeah i'm worried you you mentioned logistics i fear like if something happens in the indo-pacific how are we going to resupply that stuff like we have these large kind of supply ships and tankers i think we only have 10 of them and they're just going to be easy targets to a degree how do you like distribute that out is the unmanned or is there a way to have smaller vessels or do we just hope that there will be like oh the international community will come to our aid with these ships when we need them so Twofold, I will tell you that we are absolutely talking to our allies and our partners. There is no idea, there's no sense that it's the U.S. or nobody. That's not the purpose of, hopefully we never get to that point. Deter, right? That's the biggest thing that we want to move in that direction. Deter through force. Logistics, we are absolutely thinking through that problem set. Because what does that look like far forward? We have to run those models. We have to war game that out. We have to figure that out. 
Because Amazon's not going to be delivering it to us, right? That's for certain. Well, I don't know. Maybe I say that. Maybe there'd be a federated Amazon that may see something out there. Hey, I could do that. But we're absolutely looking across the whole Department of Defense because if we leverage and we think differently on how we might want to do this, there's probably an opportunity out there with our allies and partners to be smart about it and create that ecosystem that we need to rearm, resupply. And certainly Secretary Del Toro has asked that question of us, and we're doing the analytical work right now to help figure that out. So we talk a lot about budget reform on this podcast, planning, programming, budgeting, execution, PBBE. Is money an issue, maybe not just in terms of size, but like your ability to be agile with it in terms of fielding these unmanned vessels for the Navy? Yeah, thanks for asking that. That's near and dear to my heart. And what I mean by that is certainly we have the acquisition agility built in. We have all the laws that's been, Congress has been generous and we are completely supportive. Middle tier, OTs, et cetera, you name it. We have that agility from an acquisition perspective. We are writing requirements now to do prototyping with what we call top level requirements. So we're using that to leverage and really demonstrate and close that loop to demonstrate capability. We're letting industry help us mature those technologies based on the realm of the possible. But when it comes to the budget piece of this, especially when we talk about the unmanned task force and the analytical work they're doing on what could I do within the fit up, the PBE process, as everybody knows, 1960s, it had, nothing's changed. It's as old as me. And that's pretty old. I am hopeful that the PBE Reform Commission will look at, hey, maybe there's an opportunity here with unmanned and autonomous systems because that's a leading edge right now with technology. Maybe we could, I've talked to a lot of people about this, pilot repurposing agile funding to support getting after autonomous systems, developing a continuous prototyping pipeline. What would that look like if I could continuously prototype like our nefarious state actors do. They're they are just continuous oh I flew a UAS today and I put and they'll pick a sensor of sorts. It worked, it didn't work, and the next day they're flying again or they're modifying the algorithm. They're doing it again. It's amazing. We always have waivers. There's all kinds of stuff that we have to go through. I think if we were to look at having more agile funding that we would be able to get after this experimentation and learning curve a heck of a lot faster. But the palm process prevents us from doing that. We have to anticipate where we want to be in two years. As you pointed out, what do I want to buy in two years, two years prior? Technology in this area, in two years, I could have, I throw away my iPhone in two years, right? Because, oh, by the way, the battery like stops, like it's designed in there to, you upgrade, right? You need to upgrade every two years or you're going to be constantly cursing, carrying around a charger. I think if we don't get after creating an agile capability for autonomous and unmanned systems, we're going to really struggle and we are struggling. So I am hopeful that they will at least try to pilot something like that, maybe put some left and right lateral limits on it so that there'd be a certain dollar amount maybe dedicated to it and leave the services to go out and figure out how they would spend that money. And then we would coordinate, obviously, aviation, surface, ground, et cetera. There's some commonalities there, not all, but there's a lot of commonalities on how we might employ things on the surface and in the air that all the services could benefit by sharing that information. So I'm hopeful And I will tell you, it is always the long pole in the tent. And it always is difficult because when you look at the costs associated traditionally with what we've been doing in autonomous and unmanned systems, they don't compare and they don't compete very well when I have to go buy Columbia. 
and I have to buy the F-35, and I have to buy Virginia-class submarines, right? I am not taken away from the purpose of those platforms. They are quintessential to our national security. But if I want to procure things faster and experiment autonomous things that are $2,000 or $20,000, that's hard when you're trying to compete in the building when I've got billions and billions being dedicated to these larger platforms. So we're just not really designed or set up for success, quite honestly, based on the PBE process as it currently is. So I'm hopeful that the commission will take another look at things like autonomy and unmanned systems to to figure out a better way or maybe give us a trial or a pilot. Can you just go maybe a little bit more into that in terms of what the real constraints are? Because we have these linear appropriations, right? You go from like basic research to advanced development, prototyping, full-scale development, procurement, operations and maintenance. But then like autonomy is in, is like I need to do continuous development and deployment. Is that one of the things or is it really because it seemed like what you were saying was that like in these program element little stovepipey things, I have to say – Item A, item B, item C. This is what I'm going to buy multiple years ahead. And if I didn't say what I was going to buy exactly what it was and what I was going to do with it, then I just can't do anything. Is that is that the problem? You just want like more of a flexibility within an, a, a pot of money to say, hey, look, this, I didn't know this company existed, but they're presenting something to me. I should be able to go buy that and experiment with it and field it potentially if it makes sense within the same year of execution. Yeah, that is a limiting factor that we have. And I'll say it's a cultural issue. I really believe it's a cultural issue. It's like anything. You learn how DAU is there and you're going to be a program manager and you're going to go to DA and you're going to learn all these things, how to budget, how to build program schedules, how to hire the right people, et cetera, et cetera. The same thing with appropriations and authorizers, right? Everybody goes to school somewhere. And whether it's something that is trickled down from the seniors that you've learned this from, But we have to change our culture on this. Now, that comes at what expense, right? The taxpayer. The taxpayer obviously wants to know, hey, where's my money and what am I getting out of it? And I understand that. So the appropriators, that's their fiduciary responsibility. It's like, hey, you can't just come in here and say, I need, I'll just say, $100 million to go do some experimentation. Their job is to ask you what experimentation and how much experimentation, how long is it going to last, etc. So they have and make really relevant points, but culturally we're finding ourselves not building these finer, exquisite, large, expensive systems in unmanned and autonomy, right? We are finding that we can buy these things pretty inexpensively. So we do not have that flexibility. And so the appropriators are going to say, if it's not Columbia, this unmanned widget, and then what? Company came in and competed and its autonomy was better? Its algorithm was better? Now you're pivoting? So I can see their concern, but I also recognize that from a cultural perspective, I need to go faster. So I need more flexibility. So we do need to modify the mental model that they've used for the last 60 years and figure out a way to capitalize on stuff that's going on in the commercial space and stuff that can lend itself from the commercial space and Silicon Valley and the Elon Musks of the world that are rapid assemblers and thinkers and software people that can build software stacks overnight. They can build software. You can talk to a college kid. He's like, oh, you need an API to do what? And three days later, you have an API and you now have a new ca- a new game on your phone. It's phenomenal what we can do. But when you don't have the appropriation to do that, 
you're not going to be able to execute that. And that is a limiting factor. So I do think if our appropriators give us a little bit of a leash in this area, I think they will be impressed with what we can do. So that, that's, I know I sound like I'm cheerleading here, but that is truthfully where we need to get some cultural shift. I will cheerlead with you on that <laughs> front. It's funny though. I think it is, I think what can be done can be very impressive. I just look at, for example, there's all these articles coming out of like Turkey, for example, not a, not an exactly huge com- or country with the depth of knowledge skill that America has, but they're already putting out like unmanned surface vessels that are weaponized and they're putting missiles and automated gunnery systems on them. And they also have, they're like converting a ship into an unmanned aircraft carrier for the BT-2s and stuff like that. It's just, okay, If put aside China right now. Like, Turkey's moving out aggressively on this front. And what does that kind of say about us? Like, we could probably do the same, but it seems like some of these things you're talking about are handicapping us. I don't want to say sadly, but sadly, that is just the construct of the whole requirements, acquisition, and funding piece of it. We are just constrained because we have a large process that takes a lot of people to make a decision. And then to finance it is a two-year process. So it's not an easy, we're talking about tackling something that's, I said, has been in place for 60 years, and you don't change that overnight. I would like to see it changed overnight, but that would take an act of Congress. Yeah, I do see Turkey, the Houthis, Iran, you name it. You take a bunch of smart people and you put them in a garage and you get them some components, some lithium-ion batteries and some software, and you'd be amazed at what you can do, right? It's just really thinking outside the box, but they have to have the resources. So yeah, we are constrained by our gonculator that we call the defense process, you know? (laughs) So there's a lot of talk about, so you brought up like the Houthis in Iran. Task Force 59 is out there in the Arabian Sea and other places doing a lot of this experimentation and kind of maybe going a little bit toe-to-toe. But they're using a lot of unmanned systems from the commercial sector. I think the sailed drones of the world and what are they called? The devil rays. How is that? Can you talk a little bit about this? like as a service model where the contractor owns and operates the systems, mostly for these ISR type things, but like the DOD just buys the data, uses that. How does that work? And how do you imagine that working in like more of a wartime context? That's a really good question. So we're, so Task Force 59 is really experimenting with this business. I'll say it a business model, really, because it's sail drones philosophy is you just buy the data. You don't have to worry about the maintenance of the ships. And you go, oh, that sounds really Gucci. That would be nice. I don't have to worry about manning them or fixing them or going out and collecting them if something goes wrong. Oh, I kind of like that. So we're learning by experimenting again to include not just the logistics side of it, but the business side of it. Owning that data, is that good enough? What I see happening is that, especially with the ISR, there's value added in having commercial applications out there and exporting their data so that we can keep eyes on, so to speak. Now, when it comes to conflict, That gets a little more interesting in terms of, are we really going to get into a situation with conflict where I've got commercial operators owning, operating these things in a very difficult contested situation? I'm not so certain, I'm saying that we fortunately are in a contested situation right now, but we need to explore that. And so by doing this experiment with COCO, what we call COCO, 
contractor own, contractor operated business models. We're trying to figure out is there maybe there's different AORs that those are better suited for that aren't as contested. Maybe or would be the non-lethal mission that it's really aiming at and there's benefit there. I'm not certain the lethal piece at this point, from a policy perspective, we obviously have to follow our law of, law of armed conflict rules, et cetera. And so there is a lot of discussion going on with that. And I don't think the jury's out quite on what we anticipate moving forward, but we're definitely exploring that and looking to that as an option to augment. Again, augment our manned and unmanned, now our unmanned potential fleet as well with cocoa type model. Yeah, I don't think it's unusual or unprecedented for a civilian or contractor person. Like the Merchant Marine, for example, of World War II. I think there was a lot of, even on Wake Island, they were fighting the good fight. And on those ships and the convoys, definitely taking casualties. So do have the companies talked about this or whether like they would hire personnel to take these types of roles? Or, or would what would be the indemnification? Like if they took out one of these sail drones... Does the, like, is the asset service model, is that already paying for it? Or is there surge pricing in warfare? Or like, how does yeah. that work? <laughs> so again, the reason why I say we're experimenting, I think there's a learning curve even for, and I can't speak for Richard Jenkins, who is the CEO of Saildrone. I don't want to speak for him, but I do think at some point, if we get into a conflict type situation, there may be a price point, so to speak, where the companies, this isn't we're not making the money or we're not getting the return on investment. And maybe it, maybe there's a level that they would say up to a certain point. Because to your point, if let's just say we're over in Fifth Fleet and we have, Iran decides they want to take out 30 or 40 of these things and they just go out there and shoot holes in them and they go to sink to the bottom of the ocean. What do we do in that situation? Am I going to repay sail drone because I'm buying their data? No, I'm going to buy their data. And they're going to have to replenish that. So at what right. point does he say that, and I say the company, What time is a, what, at what point do the stakeholders, the stockholders really say, eh, maybe this isn't for us. So again, I think looking at what AORs and the mission that they may be achieving is really important to understand. And do you know like how those contracts actually look? Does it look like when you're buying like cloud services or something, you like go up to a capacity and it's just pay by the the hour or the bytes or whatever it is? Or how does, do you know how that actually looks? So I don't know how the contract was put into place. I don't know if it was you buy it by the day or I really don't know. Or if it was, I'll give you 10,000 images. I honestly don't know how that contract was negotiated. I'm fairly certain that I say I'm fairly certain. Again, I'm not an owner of or have any vested interest in sale drone or any other cocoa type model, but I'm sure they probably have a, I'll say lack of a better word, a sliding scale based on longevity. I would imagine the more you want me, the, the cheaper it gets, like anything buying in bulk. I don't know that to be true or not, but I suspect that's probably a business model that they use as part of their return on investment. Let's move on to this autonomy roadmap that you brought up earlier for the Naval Enterprise. What's that all about? Yeah, as we discussed earlier, one of the things that I've been really thinking through and putting some thought in and working with some other subject matter experts, when you think about autonomy is a pretty germane term to a lot of things. Navigational autonomy, data autonomy, HM&E autonomy, reliability autonomy, it goes on and on. So one of the things that I thought would make a lot of sense would be to go across our different domains and look at where do we want to take autonomy in the next 5, 10, and 15 years. If in 
15 years, I want to have self-healing sensors that are talking to one another with no humans, like having to share the data. What does that really look like in terms of technology? What C2 do I have to have in place? What ecosystem do I have to have in place? So there's a lot of questions that I started looking at. Okay, if my UUVs, whether it's ATR or ATR on steroids, what does that look like over time? And if I could plot that for each domain, automation of C2 systems, automation of command and control, automation of different sensors and payloads being integrated together on different platforms, air, surface, and undersea, I should probably start looking at those in terms of what's realistic in five years and then look at where I'm investing. And if I'm not investing in that area and I want to achieve that capability in five years, I should then make a recommendation to our investment council and say, hey, if I want to have this capability by year five, I need to invest this many years prior to achieve that capability. So that's that capability over time curve. And how do I buy down that risk? I've got to identify where I'm going first and then how I'm going to achieve it is going to be based on where the technology is in terms of maturity, the technicians and the manpower associated with that. Because one thing that I can't forget about is a dot mil PF, right? Oh, by the way, I want to have all these wonderful autonomous systems with algorithms. I'm going to need manpower to support that. Where am I getting those people and at what time do I need to look at training those people or retraining those people? We're looking at a robotics, for lack of a better word, NEC further. Is there a possibility that I could train somebody to be a robotics master? And oh, by the way, it doesn't matter if it's aviation, surface, or undersea. Their circuit cards, their algorithms, they're exchanging lithium-ion batteries. So we're looking at maybe there's another way that we can look at our capability over time and then build the dot mil PF to support it and make the right investments in that time frame. So it's really more of a very structured, functional decomposition of where am I trying to go and what engineering expertise do I need to have. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, you know, getting to one of or the next question, so it's a good lead in here, thinking about the total cost of ownership of these unmanned vessels rather than just the kind of development and the production. And I know like when you look at the traditional systems, like a traditional Navy ship will be like 55 to up to 70% of the life cycle cost is going to be in operations and sustainment. Do you have a feel for what is it going to take to, to do ONS for these systems and where are you going to land on that total cost of ownership? Yeah, so we're learning, again, the prototyping and why are we prototyping? To your point, why don't I just go out and start building an LUSV tomorrow? I don't know the answer to that in terms of ONS. How long is the engine going to last before it craps out? How long is the power plant going to survive? Those are the type of things that we are really looking at and trying to focus on and putting a dollar, associating a dollar amount to that. And we may find that, I'll use the term loosely because we haven't, I've yet to figure out anybody in the Department of Defense when they say attritable, what does that really mean? What's that dollar value? Is it $5,000 and it's attritable? Is it $50,000? Is it... $20 $20 million. I think they were saying like six to 10 million, at least for like so, the, for the, the drone, like the flying drone jam. Yeah. But who's coming up with those policies? I'm not really certain if. I think it's just based on, we're looking at things that we have today and like that one I think is attributable and that one's not. And that yeah. one's expendable. Well, right. So the question is, if I build say an XLUV, how long does it make sense to really keep it before I have to replace it? So we're learning, again, the prototyping piece. I'm going to put it in the water, and we're going to do some experimentation water. And we may find that 
10 years is what we need. And the technology is changing so fast that I could downsize it or I may have a different capability coming down the road. So I, we're still in that learning curve of what the duration would be for our life cycle associated with things. Again, we're not building these exquisite 30-year, I'm going to build a, a DDG or something and I expect it to be out there for 30 to 40 years. I don't see that being the case with our unmanned surface vessels. Our aviation, granted, typically with aviation, you can slap wings and make things stay a little bit longer. Systems Life Extension Program. Yes, sorry, sorry, <laughs> Systems Life Extension Program. So there's a lot of different things. We may find our UUVs that you maybe have them around for two to three years and it, maybe it's not worth chasing rust or corrosion and that you just replace them because they're cheap enough to do that. There is definitely a business case that the Navy needs to explore in this space and figure out what is that knee in the curve for something that is it a five-year lifespan, is it a 10-year, or is it 15 or 20 for that matter? We're still trying to explore that with our prototype. Yeah, it seems there's somewhere on that curve, but it feels like you want to shorten it. Because, for example, the Russians, I hear, like when they build their engines, they build them for 500 hours and they're just like, we're going to throw them out. Whereas we keep ours forever. And that, that has a lot of upfront costs that come with it. But also, if you get into a kind of attrition warfare, you right? Like, why do I need to build something for 30 years when it's not going to survive that long? We need to build something that's relevant in the time frame and for the type of fight that we might be getting into. I agree with you, and I also think that the technology, additive manufacturing, lithium-ion batteries, 35 years ago, if we would have said, I want to power an unmanned vessel with lithium-ion batteries, people would have said, I don't know what you are doing, but I don't see that happening anytime. My batteries, from they last two or three days, and they're done. The batteries in our phone, again, right? Where I use the phone as a great analogy. They're designed to crap out after two years. There's only so many charges that it'll take. Okay, so men, do I just do a battery replacement? That may be the right knee in the curve that we want to figure out. So I don't know if we know the answer to that just yet. And I think there's, again, a lot of learning that we need to do and trying to define what's attritable and how long they last and what technologies are going to be around. And oh, by the way, in 30 years, do I want to have something that I built 30 years ago? We are learning now the way technology is moving. Quantum is coming. Quantum computing is coming. That is going to look very different than we use today. It's just, I anticipate now. I can't really see into the future, but I'm expecting that quantum computing is going to make life very different. We're coming up on, on time here, but I want you to give a plug for your newsletter called The Disruptor. What is that and what were you trying to accomplish with it and where can people find it? Yeah, so thanks for asking about that. So The Disruptor, it's an idea I had when I started out in Daz and Unmanned. To your point earlier, we've got Task Force 59, we've got UTF, we've got unmanned in the air, unmanned on the surface, unmanned in the undersea, unmanned on the ground. We have all these enabling technologies. We wrote a roadmap in 2015, and as part of that roadmap, it became very evident to me there's going to be a lot of activity in this space, and we should probably keep people informed, both industry and leadership. Like typical Department of Defense, Everybody has their job to do, and that job, if your job is aviation, you're going to focus on aviation because you want to be the subject matter expert. You are probably not going to be looking at what frigate or what SD's doing or name a ship, right? You're probably not too interested unless you're doing some aviation integration with it. So what I started recognizing immediately is that 
unmanned crosses all domains. Certainly artificial intelligence and machine learning and things that are now being operated by batteries. There is a lot of learning going on and I wanted to be able to put a newsletter together that went out and essentially got pieces from different Department of Defense people, our allies and our partners, and learning to see what they're doing so we can start sharing. Again, this is more of the efficacy of learning. And if we could, if I could help facilitate that, go faster, increase that speed curve, right? I wanted to be able to do that. So it's really been an opportunity for me to learn and collaborate with all the partners and all the different domains and learn and see what they're doing. What is the Army doing with their standards? What is Air Force doing with tactical collaboration? What is DARPA doing with all these different highly sophisticated R&D projects? All of that matters. And I wanted to put one newsletter together that can share that information for industry. And like I said, not only the Navy and the Marine Corps, but all of defense. So we can go to it and use it as a reference guide and really show the progress. Like you asked questions about how many hours, where is that line in the curve? I think as we continue to learn and experiment, we're going to start seeing that data show results. The logistics train, the manpower trains. I think in a lot of ways, I'm kind of documenting history here, at least with on-man and autonomy, but it really was intended to share that information so that we don't duplicate it, right? And that we learn and intellectually share whether it leaps or inch stones, whatever it may be. So that was the intent of putting it together. We recently opened it up to our industry partners. So industry can now participate in that. And I put it out, I try pretty much quarterly and you'll see it posted on LinkedIn every quarter. And it's really just been my little baby. And so far, so good. I think we're, I'm getting ready to release edition six. It's being reviewed at the more senior level. And I'm hoping that I'll, hoping for the weekend, but it may be next week that we'll release that next edition. And it, it, a perfect example, there's an article in there coming in that we're discussing at RETMUSE 2022. And in RETMUSE, we had over 20 countries operating the largest unmanned exercise to date. And allies and partners came together, and it was amazing what we were able to do in a short period of time using the technology that the different countries have and seamlessly coming together and doing a multi-country storm the beach. It was, a, it was pretty amazing what we did on the air, on the surface, in a very short period of time. So it's definitely proving that standards matter, and you can scale when you have a standard to build to. So one of the lessons learned out of RETMUSE is if you want to be an ally and partner with the United States and the UK and Portugal and Norway, we are finding if you can build this standard, the world will be able to scale a lot quicker if there ever really comes a time where we have to defend ourselves and see conflict on the horizon. So anyways, that, that will be an article that we'll be sharing. And so I, I'm really looking forward to continuing that. It is a labor of love, but hopefully people get it and enjoy it and learn something along the way. Yeah. I always feel like one of the things we're missing in the department is we lose this institutional memory because we know there's no like project histories where people can go reference, see what was being done. Like what was the business strategy? What was the technology? How did this all come together? It's just like we have 
these amazing case studies like that Harvard should be doing, but no one's doing it. But no one's doing it. It's crazy. Yeah. And it's so funny you say that because I I went to DAU and then you pull all these case studies and I'm like, with unmanned, if somebody doesn't start doing it now, it'll get lost. It'll be lost. Yeah. And so I consider myself the gray beard, less the beard. (laughs) I consider the gray beard, at least for the Navy and the Marine Corps. And it is becoming somewhat of a little institutional go-to newsletter that people are learning and gaining a lot of information from. And I think on LinkedIn, like I said, when I put it out there, there's probably about 18,000 people that at least tag it. I don't know who's actually reading it, but if they're reading it, great. But the idea is to really distribute information and keep people informed. I'm definitely reading it. Oh, good. (laughs) Dorothy Engelhart, thanks for joining me on Acquisition Talk and being my last guest on the podcast before we sign off here. Yeah, thanks for inviting me and I'll... Sad to see you go, but also happy to see where you're going. You have a big future ahead of you, and I know you're going to do wonderful things there. So I'm looking forward to continuing the relationship and just getting Congress more involved with Unmanned and being having a proponent up there to support <laughs> moving forward in this domain. So thanks for inviting me. I appreciate it. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.